This is the Enter Sad Men Podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Yeah, hello again. Welcome along to Enter Sad Men. Good to have your company for this, the latest installment of the podcast. Episode 37, would you believe? A podcast in which we, we review, we rate, we rank hard rock and heavy metal's finest albums from what we perceive to be the genre's golden age, which is 1970 to 1995. Keep saying we. My name's Steve. I'm the company... As ever, of my great mates, fellow headbangers, fellow podders, Richard and Mark, and the three of us will be um, reviewing three albums, as we always do. Um, and once we've gassed about them, we will school them and then see where they end up in our Hall of Fame, which is what this whole thing's all about. The wonderful Enter Sad Men Hall of Fame, a league table of vinyl excellence, which currently houses 108 albums and a more eclectic rock mix you'll struggle to find anywhere. In fact, you won't find anything more varied than ours. It's as simple as that. Um, if you want any more info on the show, who we are, what we do, why we do it, should we do it, enter sadmen.co.uk. And yeah, so here we go. So if you're thinking 1970, which is the starting point of our 25-year timescale for reviewing these things, if you're thinking, well, that was a long time ago, well, this is your lucky day. This is your lucky podcast because as if by magic – 1970 is the theme of this week's episode. We childishly have a tombola. We're such children, tombola that has numbers that correspond to themes. It spat out a number, and the number corresponded this time round to the year 1970. So we're going back to the beginning, which has been fascinating thus far, and I'm looking forward to being engaged in conversation. Now, Mark, we did 1971 a few weeks back, and I remember you thinking, well, not thinking, you commented that it would that the pickings weren't particularly rich in that year. Have you found Have you found 1970 more fertile seam? Yes, I, yes, I definitely have. Yeah, this is 1970. Nothing made sense in 1970. That's what yeah. I learned. Nothing made sense. It was all absolutely bonkers. But now I've had a really good week. And it's it's also worth pointing out that Mark is very much our seventies our seventies throwback. So if if he's found you know plenty of things to find in the seventies, then there are plenty of things to find in the seventies. Richard, have you enjoyed? Casting your mind back a hell of a long way. 51 years, Christ. I've had a ball. I think we have hit a very rich scene and picked three, well, certainly unknown to me albums that are just absolute gems. It's been great. That's that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Because we could easily have gone obvious, couldn't we? I mean, Led Zeppelin 3, I'm guessing, was out there. Um, yep. Deep Purple must have done an album. In rock, yeah, they did in rock. I looked at Zeppelin and Purple and Sabbath and I went, no, I need to make a bit more effort. I genuinely think we are reviewing a godfather of rock tonight as well. Okay. Well, you can tell us all about it in a bit, but first of all, let's have the big reveal then. What, uh, what albums have we chosen, Richard? I've chosen the late 1970 release from a German, well, mostly German band called Lucifer's Friend and their self-titled debut. I thought, right, well, I can, because I, I, I chose last. I, I was the last to reveal my choice to you this week. And um, and when you, you revealed your two, I thought, oh, maybe I should just go some, you know, something a bit more well-known. And it was a bit more well-known in the sense that this album I had actually heard, unlike the other two. But I went for Mountains Climbing, exclamation mark, from March 1970 was my choice. Steve, you had a fun week. 
yeah. This is the danger with random picking. No, 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 I'm happy with what I chose. A band I've never heard of, but I certainly know them now. Yeah, I've gone for some Texan rock from uh, early that year. Um, February or March, depending on whether you listen to Mark or me, or read Wikipedia. And I've gone for Blood Rock and their debut album, the eponymously titled Blood Rock. So if any of these mean anything to you, then you'll know what they're about. If they don't, let's hear a few snippets. enjoyed those few snippets uh, what a great three albums as usual we are going to introduce and review these albums in the order which they were released which means we start with steve and blood rock's first album steve take it away mm, yeah so this is as you say blood rock now this is quite interesting because I've, I've, I've done loads of it i've mainly listened to the music because that's what it's all about i tried to do a lot of research and yeah, memories fade, I'm guessing, over 50-odd years because you hear all sorts of different stories about this band and some things you kind of pick up on, some things you don't. This is a period in time, correct me if I'm wrong, boys, this is a period in musical time. This is before the birth of, before heavy metal as a term had really come about, I think. I know people mentioned it, but... As we, I'm sure, would talk about, there's jazz in quite a lot of this. There's some yeah. funk, there's some soul, yes. there's all sorts of stuff going on. So, like I said... 1970, nothing made sense. <laughs> yeah, that is true. God, it didn't. Um, yeah, well, it's interesting what you said about the Doom, because I call this Down the Rock, and I'd heard it's called Acid Rock before, um, Blood Rock. I had a stab at it, and I called it, I came up with Texan Pothead Redneck Metal with a Jazz Funk Rock Fusion. I thought that's hit several nails on the head. We did an episode recently of bands we couldn't believe didn't make it. Well, not we couldn't believe, we just, they didn't make it, and we were kind of mildly surprised. I've lobbed this lot into that mix because they weren't a big deal at all. Um, I know of the three bands we're doing tonight, Mount Mountain were a, were a big were a big gig in stateside. Lucifer's Friend weren't, Blood Rock weren't, and you listen to this and you think, no, nah, they could have been bigger. Right now, there's a right and a wrong way to listen to Blood Rock, as I discovered. You can't do these albums without paying full attention to it. Better than that, you can't do these albums without just being immersed. You have to let it drift over you. Opening album sleeve notes. Anyway, a little bit about the band. They were formed as the Naturals, became Crowd Plus One, 
finally BlackRock in 1969. There's a big connection with Grand Funk Railroad, and as much as the producer who spotted them was Terry Knight, who was also a producer for Grand Funk. I think this was recorded at the Cleveland Recording Company, which is kind of Capitol Records and Terry Knight's home base. It's either February or March 1970. It lasts 48.36. It's nine tracks, and as ever, as you can imagine, they're not an equal distance. And the personnel... This is the great bit. So star of the show, Jim Rutledge on lead vocals and drums. Now, you don't get many drummer vocalists, but here's one. And this is the only album who did it on. Followed by Nick Taylor, rhythm guitar, backing vocals. The other star of the show is Lee Pickens on lead guitar and backing vocals. And then the real star of the show is Eddie Grundy, fresh from appearing in The Archers, who doubled up for them as well on bass guitar and vocals. And the ultimate star of the show and a man who Mountain would have loved, is um, Stevie Hill on keyboards and backing vocals. So that's the band, and uh, how'd you get on with it? Brilliant. I've thoroughly enjoyed all three of them. But the more I've listened to Blood Rock, the more it's gripped me. And uh, I think, we've, as I said, we've come up with three corkers this week. It's been great. Did you get it straight away, Rich? No, no. It wasn't a turn-off. Yeah, but yeah. It, it uh, I found it a pleasant first listen. The, as, as I cycled through them all, the more I listened to this one, it, it, it just continued to climb. Did, did you feel? Did you feel on listening to it compelled to spend fifty three pounds on the vinyl version straight away? No, no, no. Mark, <laughs> how did you get on with it? <laughs> I've, I've, like Richard, it's grown on me. I, I think. Um, I mean. I, I, can't, I got a sense last Thursday that you were in shock, Steve. That, it, that was kind of where I was left. And I just thought, what's he hearing that I'm not? Because I thought, do you know what? It's a solid album. It's a solid album. It's simplistic in parts. Yeah, they're not, re- they're not inventing anything new, particularly new here. Uh, you might disagree. We'll find out in a minute. Yeah, I really liked it. I liked it to begin with. It's grown on me since. So, yeah, it's been a yeah, really enjoyed it. There's a lot going on with this album, as there is with the other two as well. You, you can easily find yourself listening to a different part musically as you listen to it every time. There's just so many different parts going on. And that's, I guess that's why there was a point during the week, as I've told you, I just, I just had to hit Motley Crue and just get out of here. You know, I just needed some simplicity in my life. <laughs> okay, so it's um, as I say, it's nine tracks. It's five on side one and four on side two, and it opens with... Got to find a way, which, as I say, was the track that sort of you know hooked me, that drew me in straight away. Um, it's actually got a backward message in it. Apparently, I, I, I know nothing about that, and obviously you can't you you, you can't um, kind of figure that out on Spotify for obvious reasons. But but beyond that, cobblers, it's astonishing. Honestly, there's a kind of two note guitar intro into this most monotonous, uh, in a good way, hypnotic kind of mesmerising two note organ line. It all sounds so simple, um, but but then over the top. You've got incredible organ solos, you've got guitar solos, you've got, and then underneath there's an incredible bass line, all interrupted from time to time by Rutledge's vocals, quite Rob Tyner, I thought. I know there's quite a lot of comparisons. Um, anyway, we've got six and a half minutes of this, and I could listen to it for an hour. It's just mesmerising. I think it's genius. It's a great start, isn't it? I don't know if there are any videos around. I haven't found any of whether Rutledge actually was doing this drumming and the singing at the same time, because his drumming is pretty damn complex. Yeah. So uh, if he was able to do both of this, uh, yeah, fair play to him. I mean, yeah, it's incredibly percussive, isn't it? His, his rhythm's driving the whole thing as it does on so many songs on this album. And it's a good introduction. I think it's a good calling card. I mean, really good interplay between the guitar and the organ, the harmonised vocals. You say that, I mean, it, it, it's one of, one of the simpler songs. <laughs> 
on the album. But there's still a load going on. Yeah, and I when when I heard this, I thought oh, I know exactly why Steve's chosen this. Really good opening track. It is, and it drifts into um, Castle of Thoughts, which is um, which is very different. It's and, and well, it's half the length. It's a real driver. It's quite a hooky riff. You know, a bit, bit blasé about riffs, aren't we? But back then, this must have just seemed monstrous, really monstrous, given where we were, you know, post-Beatles. Anyway, I like this track. Um, and the star of it is uh, Lee Pickens on guitar. Is Lee Sallow out, priceless. Mark? This is this is the one where the lyrics I kind of really struggled with, certainly the first time I heard them, because it, we've got Castle of Thoughts, Cottage of Dreams, and As Easy as Falling Off a Picket Fence. And, and all three phrases just think... Um, yeah, so you, I kind of got a bit obsessed. No, no, I was just thinking you're trying to make sense of lyrics in an album that contains tracks by the name of Fantastic Piece of Architecture and Melvin Laden Egg. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't get, I wouldn't get too fussed about the lyrics. Well, it's 1970. I, I think the thing about this album is that it's one of those albums that the more you listen to it, the more you hear, and the more you hear, yeah. the more you like it. it. Took me ages to get into this track, but I love yeah. it. Several of these are going to make it onto a playlist because. Yeah. I want to keep listening to them. Uh, this this one included. It's been a real, real grower, it, and this is a great example of all, so many influences. I mean, I mean, there are bits on this with the Hammond organ and everything, and the phrasing and the the, the percussion. It's like the James Taylor Quartet, you know, the acid jazz guys. The James Taylor Quartet It's like the James Taylor Quartet meets Freeze Wishing Well. This song, <laughs> I mean, just fantastic drum groups. And of course, the other thing we should mention because it will come up a couple of occasions through tonight, is obviously this song featured some absolutely fantastic cowbell. And gentlemen, um, you may not have found it yet, but I have found an absolutely, really, really important source of material. And that is the website ultimatecowbell.com, <laughs> where they have assessed, I think, about 4,000 songs those that they feel have the biggest potential and the biggest impact of Cowbell. Yes, don't fear the Reapers on there. Blood Rock's Castle of Thoughts gets a Cowbell score of 3.40434. So, yes, Ultimate Cowbell really rates wow. this. So they're more famous than I Hold thought. On. Wait, I need context. 3.40 whatever, how does that compare with anything else? Well, I'm going to let you... Wait in anticipation, because I will be giving another cowbell score out later. <laughs> right, well, I'm halfway through um, Fatback, which is track three on uh, on side one, or Blood Rock. And it, uh, this is fantastic. This this is, well, this this actually sounds like the jazz guy Gregory Porter, who I've seen. And I have seen Gregory Porter live near Paris. And this is so jazzy. All the hi-hats, all the semitones on the piano, and then Eddie Grundy's bass. But anyway, his bass kicks in. It's just to die for. This is like Gotta Find a Way in that it's got that beautiful monotony that just gets in your head. I think it's a fantastic song. Just going to say, for, for Cast of Thoughts, I've written in my notes, funky, baby. And for Fatback, I've written... Jazzy baby, and I think <laughs> yeah. that's this album all over, isn't it? And, and I could go on and probably write 10 different genres down here. On all three of these albums, the bass players are all over the place, um, in a good way. In a good yeah. way, in terms of what this reminds me of, as well as that, that real jazzy groove, just for anyone who wants to get, give, get an essence of you know, this song and, and the tempo and the groove on it, it's very like an, a song called Shake off of ZZ Top's Tres Hombres album. It's just got that really lovely slow shuffle to it. Um, yeah, brilliant third track. 
Well, hardly a surprise, is it? The both from Texas. So I imagine that uh, there's a fair bit of cross-pollination going on there. Okay, so Double Cross is track four. Um, one of three songs on the album that was written by, they're from Fort Worth. I may not have mentioned they're from Fort Worth. And Johnny Nitzinger, who wrote this, is also from Fort Worth. Um, according to Stevie Hill, um, was a dynamite songwriter. He would write, he would go on to write a dozen or so songs for the band, um, but only on the first four albums, which is when Rutledge left. I think the two of them were, were big buddies. So, yeah, I, I like Double Cross. It's got, again, it's a great start, really atmospheric. You think you know where it's going, and then Lee Pickens' guitar kicks in, and you say to yourself, well, actually, I didn't know it was going there at all. It's quite a poppy riff, yet more hi-hat from the king of the hi-hats. But it's all about the groove. It's just a it's just a groovy, groovy song. Not one of the highlights, but nice and groovy. And it's it's that era, isn't it? It is the era for being groovy. I think it keeps the the whole feeling of the first side going really, really well. It's, you've got to move to it. You've just got to move to it. I mean, the, the drum groove is superb. Again, the bass line's there, and uh, there's some lovely stop-start sections in, in the middle. Do you know, it's one of, well, two songs I've discovered. There might be more, but two songs that have actually been sampled for songs by hip-hop and R&B artists. And actually, given the groove on it, you can kind of understand. So this was sampled for a, a track called You Deserve, obviously, again, part of the lyric, by a, a, an artist called Cy Scott. You've been a little bookworm this week, haven't you, Rich? Ultimate cowbell, ultimate sampling. It's all there, isn't it? You get everything on this podcast, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Side one on Blood Rock's debut album finishes with a track called Timepiece, and it's dark, and they do do dark. On their second album, they did a song called DOA, very well known. This one apparently is about a prisoner counting down the time before he goes to the chair. That's what Timepiece is about. And if, once you know that and you listen to it, Christ, it's pretty sad. It's, it's got a really moody start and um, with the organ leading into a kind of doom-laden guitar line and then the even doomier bass drops in and then Rutledge joins in and then it all kicks up into the chorus. The, then the highlight of this track, you've got this unbelievable deep purplest trade-off between Pickens' guitar and Hill's organ set against an unforgiving backbeat and it comes out of the cat. Oh, it's, it's, it's very clever. It's really good. It's like a jam. They're just jamming away. And there's quite a few tracks on this album. It just feels like they're jamming away. Um, brilliant. Great song. One thing I realised was the, the start, He where there's just his, his voice over the guitar. I, it, it took me all week to think, where, where have I heard this before? Where have I heard this before? Where have I heard this before? I think that Alice in Chains on their album Dirt, there's a song called Rooster. Oh, yeah. I know. And it just really feels as ripped off the start of this song. Well, I wouldn't be at all surprised if um, certainly this band and the other two bands we're doing tonight weren't, you know, inspiration for a hell of a lot of rock people down the line. I mean, there must have been. You know, this is the Jurassic Age of rock, innit? And, and there's some good stuff going on and it would have been followed by other people, I'm sure it would. So anyway, so you flip the album over to uh, Wicked Truth kicks off side two, which is... Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a rocker. This is this this is a cracking, pacey riff. Rutledge sharing vocal duties with someone, and I can't for the life of me find out who it is. But uh, it's just rock and funk going toe to toe. Bit of lift music thrown in there a couple of times, which brings it down. And a truly awful Alvin and the Chipmunks finish. End of this song is just such a bummer. But bit funky, bit bit too funky for me. This one. I quite like this. This is all right. This is. I think. Um, I don't even mind the ending. So I know what you mean. I suppose that my, my issue with it is the question he asked throughout, which is where are you going? And I'm not sure I know where it's going. 
That's that's my issue with this track, but I quite like it. At the start, the, the, there's a fantastic drum track with the main guitar riff. I just wish that lasted the whole song. They then go into when the verses are on, which sort of rolls around the drums, and it, it gets a bit messy for me there. But that main riff with his real drum groove and that da 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 on the guitar, I could just listen to all day. I could do without the do-do-do's. So three to go. And the next one is Give Me Your Head. And we're just we're bouncing along uh, into a bit of guitar and, a, and, and away we go. Uh, the guitar solo is a, sque- a screamer in this. There's quite a choral sound to the harmonies. I haven't got an awful lot to say about it. It's just so <laughs> this feels far more 60s than, um, than a couple of the other tracks off the album. Yeah, it's OK. Well, it, it does feel a bit 60s, doesn't it, to begin with? And what, what I thought about this was I didn't like the start. I don't like the beginning of this track, but I love the ending of it. It doesn't really know what it is at the start of it, but then it once it starts really getting into that chorus and, and the trade-offs between the, the instruments, I think it's really good, really good ending. Yeah, it's only more psychedelic, isn't it? This is almost uh, 1970s primal scream. It's more the age of Aquarius, isn't it? That's what I was getting. <laughs> and it goes into, now then, <laughs> fantastic piece of architecture. This has been the missing piece of the jigsaw for me for most of the week. And it still doesn't quite fit. I, I kind of, I'm kind of understanding it more and more on each play. Anyone who doesn't know this song, it's a pretty creepy, pretty sinister, near nine-minute dirge. And, I'm, and, I, and I mean dirge in the musical sense, not not a, not a taking the piss sense. It's, it's a gloomy piece of music. I mean, it really is. I, I, I believe it's about a bloke admiring a masterpiece. I can't believe it's as simple as that. It, it just can't be. But it sounds like a funeral march. That's certainly how it opens up anyway with the sort of big, heavy... Bark like I can't mention bark either without thinking of Spinal Tap, but with with a sort of heavy bark like organ. So it sounds like a Doors song, but but just gloomier and heavier, and and um, just no one hit the stop button on it, and it just got deeper and doomier and gloomier. There's loads of good things musically going on in there, little things. The vocals I find hugely annoying. I don't know. I still do you know what I'm sitting in, and I still don't know what to make of it. Is this just me? This is my musical porn for the week. I think this is absolutely tremendous. I think it's beautiful. It's creepy. It's gothic. It's sweeping. It's it's massive in terms of its scale and scope. And it's been my guilty pleasure all week because I because it's not a track that ordinarily I would expect myself to like. But I think this is the best thing they've on this album. I feel wrong liking it as much as I do but I really, really like it. I think of all of the tracks in this album, this is the one that will make a playlist. Okay. I'm still more with Steve than Mark. I've tried. I've really tried. Yeah. Um, I get everything you're saying, Mark. I mean, it is incredibly eerie. I I, I sense it is played on a full church organ. It sounds I mean, it's incredibly ambitious, but yeah, it it's still not grabbed me. I'm fo- I feel yeah, I'll say unfortunately, it, it's still not quite. I've, I've not got that where you are, Mark, with with this. But my goodness, this was this was ambitious to include it, wasn't it? Yeah. So this is the other track uh, that's sampled by know another one of Mark's favourites, um, which is Natty from uh, the Cunning Linguists. <laughs> Uh, and their hip hop track uh, that's actually called Architecture. Check it out. Oh. <laughs> that's just hilarious. That is hilarious. <laughs> We're eight tracks into this album. And Jesus, I mean, there's a whole load of stuff going on here, and we haven't finished yet. We've got one more, one more to go just to finish off, uh, which is called Iron Man. Oh, sorry, Melvin laid an egg. 
Black Sabbath's debut came out a month earlier, I guess. So they'd have all been writing their stuff around the end of 69. But um, this just strikes me as a almost a heavy metal song, you know? I can't, I, the lyrics, I just want to go home and have myself an ice cream cone. I don't, it's, it's a mad, mad song. But I like it, I must admit. Sums up the album. Just fuses all different styles together. It's the perfect way to finish it off, if I'm honest. Um, long instrumentals, pretty heavy feel, melting pot of all the stuff that you know they've either hinted at or done or tried to figure out. Crushingly heavy finish after a weird bit of Pink Floyd. It's a crazy, crazy finish. It reminds me a bit of the finish on um, the MC5 album we did. It just, it's just going off at several angles. Love it. I think it's a really good finish. As you say, it, it, it's it's mad. It's absolutely mad, but it's great fun. Yeah, I've got a, le- a bit of Led Zeppelin in the back line and the riff as well. Yeah, certainly those those total Pink Floyd vocal breaks, aren't they? They're, yeah. they're straight into bits of almost Dark Side of the Moon on it. Yeah. Um, great big power organ chords. But yeah, th- this is heavy. Yeah, great way to finish the album. It's the heaviest track on the album, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's a really good way to finish the album. And... They're obviously a bit of a cult band, um, a, a live band, I'm sure. Never made it big in terms of record sales. I've no idea how many records they've sold. Um, it's an absolutely fascinating album. Give us your highs and lows then. My low, nothing's a low, but just it still hasn't gripped me. Dear old fantastic architecture. It does my high. I've got a few up there, but I'll give it to Fatback. That's interesting. So my low is Double Cross, just because it wasn't special enough, different enough. And my high is the fantastic, fantastic piece of architecture. Uh, well, if you'd have asked me a week ago, fantastic would have been low by some considerable distance, but it's it's working its way up up the ladder. Um, Wicked Truth's my low, and my high was, still is, probably always will be, got to find a way. I think it's just a brilliant way into the album. Great stuff. Thoroughly enjoyed that. Okay, so there we go. That was Blood Rock and their debut album. So staying stateside, and we don't quite know how much later, but this definitely came out at the start of March. And Mark, the debut album, kind of, from Mountain. Yeah, so this this is an album that I was familiar with. I wouldn't say I knew it. I think, Steve, you owned it at one point, didn't you? Um, but, yeah, so I chose Mountain. Leslie West, obviously we lost him in December, didn't we? But um, he was a big influence on quite a lot of people, notably for me, Dave Menachetti. Leslie West was the inspiration for Dave Menachetti to pick up a guitar and uh, and play. So, um, yeah. Opening album sleeve notes. Mountain Climbing, March 7th, 1970, it was released. Recorded late 1969 to early 1970, obviously. Released on the Windfall label, which was a label owned by the man who was originally brought in as a producer for the album and ended up uh, playing bass and uh, writing and songwriting for them and then joined the band uh, as a permanent member, a guy called Felix Papadal, Papadali. So he owned Windfall Records, and that's essentially what they recorded on. This album, 32 minutes, 38 seconds, and it was recorded at Record Plant Studios in New York City. The personnel were Leslie West on guitars and lead vocals. He shares lead vocals with Papaladi as well. So he, he Leslie West takes on vocal duties for three tracks as the lead vocalist, uh, Papaladi on two, and then they share three. So Felix Papaladi is sound bass, Steve Knight on organ, Mellotron, and handbells. Mountain were, I think, widely recognised as the original cowbell merchants. Nobody on this album has been credited with the cowbell, unless handbells 
are cowbells, and they may well be. Who knows? And the lineup was completed by Lawrence Corky Lang on drums. This is the classic lineup. I say the classic lineup. It's the only lineup. They released three albums and then disappeared. This album reached number 17 on the US chart, didn't chart in the United Kingdom. Absolutely no idea what the sales uh, info is like. But it uh, was another nine-track album. And just like Blood Rock, it's four on one side, five on the other. It includes them probably their signature track. It's their calling card for their career. That's, of course, Mississippi Queen, which I think uh, probably the whole world has heard. How did you two get on with it? Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's got some great grooves. Lots of cowbell. We'll come on to that. Again, there's there's a lot going on in these songs. The, the, the freedom with which artists were able to put their thoughts you know, onto tape back in those days. It's, it's just so refreshing, isn't it? So, yes, very good fun. Steve? It's interesting. It's um, it's kind of less free, I think, than the other two. And I, I think Steve Knight, is, he just seems so restrained when everyone else is being so flamboyant. There's obviously an awful lot of issues. But, yeah, no, no, it's um, – I did have this album, yeah, um, and I had – Avalanche as well, um, which I also like. I kept Avalanche. And now you won't mind, I got rid of this. I went to the record and tape exchange in Notting Hill, Donkers years ago, took this and a few other albums and got in return, and I'm sure you know, I'm sure I told you, Motley Crue's Too Fast for Love on Leather. So I think it was a fair trade-off. The interesting thing about Mountain compared to the other two is I think that Mountain, because of what you said about Leslie West and appearing, it appeared at Woodstock, couldn't it, even before he'd produced, or this band band had appeared at Woodstock, couldn't it, in 69, without an album to its name. I think there was a kind of bit of Zeppelin about them in as much as everyone knew they were going to be a big deal, I think, because of the names and the characters. So it was no surprise. I, I think there was a lot more fanfare with Mountain than there was certainly was with Blood Rock or, or Lucifer's Friend. I, I don't know. It's been fun. I, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. There's some fairly ordinary stuff on here, but there's some good stuff. I love it when they strip it back, but it's been a good listen, really good listen. I think you're absolutely right. There was, there was a lot of noise about Mountain. Uh, in the late sixties, or does it live up to the hype? I don't think it does. Actually, I think I think I think it's a really good album, but it's not Zeppelin esque, is it? And it's in meeting that expectation. But it's a very good album. Um, let's give it a listen. So the album kicks off with their signature track, Mississippi Queen. Well, it doesn't actually. It kicks off with a whole load of fucking cowbell. <laughs> you couldn't. You, it's it's cowbell on toast. So come on, before we even talk about the track, what cowbell score did it get on UltimateCowbell.com? Well, Mark, this is, I imagine you're pleased to hear, one of four tracks on this album that feature at ultimatecowbell.com. And uh, indeed, Mississippi Queen gets the highest score of the four tracks, and indeed, one of the highest scores on ultimatecowbell.com of 4.34555. They reckon it to be, and I quote, the quintessential cowbell song. Besides Don't Fear the Reaper, there is no other song that is more associated with cowbell than Mississippi Queen. And uh, it actually gets a higher score on ultimatecowbell.com than Don't Fear the Reaper. But did you know, did you know that the, the reason that cowbell is there is that they couldn't get the song started properly enough. So Sir Lawrence Lang got completely hacked off and then decided to absolutely whack Seven Shades out of this cowbell to make sure the whole band came in on time. Well, it's absolutely immediately identified. You only have to hear the cowbell and you know exactly what song this is. 
you've heard this song, you'll know it from the cover. It's a great song. It's a great song. Leslie West in fine form vocally. His guitars are right up front and centre. And I think this is a really well-produced album as well. Given where we were in 1970 with the production techniques and the technology that was available, it's the best. I think it's the best of the three. Yeah, it's, it's, I've heard it too often. I still like it. I think it's a great song. Um, I prefer Wasp's version, <laughs> and, I'm, and I make no apology for that. So we, um, we moved from Mississippi into the Midwest for the theme for an imaginary Western. And this is, um, this is sort of quite introspective, isn't it, and haunting, and lots of distortion on the guitar, and, and you've got this sort of kind of sweeping keyboard sitting behind it as well. I like this track. Really like it. It's one of those really big, wide open space songs, isn't it? They've they've managed to get that feeling, that soundscape, uh, like you know, so I guess songs by Kansas or America. That that's a real, you know, big, wide view with his soaring vocals and the the whooshing keyboards. Because one of the reasons I think that. Mountain were going to be expected to be a big deal was obviously because of um, Papalardi's involvement with Cream, wasn't it? And 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 there was almost an expectation that Mountain were going to be the American Cream. And, and indeed, Jack Bruce actually co-wrote this song. Didn't he? Yeah, and he, he turns up again, doesn't he, on uh, Silver Paper as well. Leslie West was very taken with particularly Clapton's sound on yeah. Cream. I think he was he was seduced by Disraeli Gears, and yeah, you can hear a lot of Cream in this. Album. Yeah, but, but interestingly, Papalardi didn't want them to become the next cream, did he? Which is why he employed an organist, a keyboard specialist. That's He wanted them to stand apart and be different, which makes the whole irony of the first cover they do, in effect, is one that's written by, you know, the, the, the brains behind cream, which is which is kind of odd. It's an odd choice. I can't, I, I just can't get white a shade of pale out of my mind but when I listen mm. to this. I do like Papalardi's singing, though, and he, he only sings lead vocals on a couple of tracks on this. I prefer it on the Lair, the second one, but it's it's a nice piece. It is a nice piece. It's a surprising second piece, second song. Particularly given what comes next, which is, yeah. for me, the pick of the album, Never in, Never in My Life, which is a right little rocker and uh, really kind of feels like suddenly they're back on it with this. And this is this is, you don't get much more rock and roll than this track, Never in My Life, on this album, I would say. I just like the idea of being woken up by a shot of whiskey and some loving. No wonder he likes her. <laughs> Anything to add, Steve? Hendrix said he loved the riff, and I get that. I get I get. this is where blues is kind of morphing into metal, as close as they do it anyway. This would have been better. Track two, great song, really good song. Yeah, super riff, isn't it? Yeah. This features on Ultimate Cowbell with a score of 4.03124, gentlemen. They are the cowbell specialists, aren't they? So... We move on to the final track of side one, uh, which is Silver Paper. Now, when I wrote my notes for this, I've just written two words. The first one is Joe. Do you want? Do you want to know what the second word is? Cocker. This is Joe Cocker for me. I got cream. I got cream all over. Sorry, that sounds a bit rude, doesn't it? Um, the, 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 the opening two vocals you know, sung by the different people, that sounded like a classic opening cream with Bruce singing one line and Clapton singing the next. Back to Steve's irony earlier, this is so close to cream, whatever whatever they were trying to do to get further away. Astonished this wasn't um, put out as a single, just smacks of something that would have sold really well. It seems really commercial, really catchy tune. Yeah, it's proper blues, isn't it? A good song, great song. But again, another another observation, again, of, of, of where you saw the fractiousness between the band, you know, because 
this was a track where they wanted Knight to do what the rest of them did and go jamming and, and, and do some crazy shit on, on the organ like they were doing with the guitar and the bass is all over the place. They just, they just have such fun, these boys. He didn't. This kind of classically trained um, psychology graduate who West didn't want in the band, Papalardi did, and it just caused so much aggro all the way through. The organ throughout this album is so weak compared to what we've listened to with Blood Rot and what we're going to listen to with Lucifer's Friend. You know, they, those boys know how, to, know how to show off, and he didn't. Really good point. So um, let's turn the record over. And we have a what I think is a very strange opening for side two. It's called For Iazga's Farm. I think it's a really understated, almost sort of anodyne start to the second side of the album. And you just think, well, what's that all about? It's, it's inoffensive. It's, there's nothing wrong with it. It's a perfectly pleasant little tune. But what's it doing there? I've got pleasant. That is the word. It's fine. He sounds like Eric Clapton on this. Not up with the others in terms of inventiveness and creativity. And Yeah, no, I echo all of that. I do like it. It picks up a little bit, or at least his vocals pick up a little bit. You can kind of hear him bearing his soul. But um, I mean, I don't even know what the song the song's about Woodstock, presumably, but or is it about a lost love? Who knows? It's just, it's just, it just shouldn't be there where it is, I don't think, or that shouldn't be there at all. Anyway, so we, we move on to the only instrumental on the album, uh, which is called To My Friend. I tell you what, this is this is Heart Meets Led Zepp. It's a bit a little queen in the woods with a caravan, and it's a it's a little bit of gallows pole and it's all right. I'm not sure Mountain should be doing it. Well, Mountain do do it, of course, because um there's a gr- great track off Avalanche called Allison, which I love to bits. Um and it's very similar to that. There is the, the instrumental that they have on that album as well yeah I, it's a little bit folk in it as you say and then goes a little bit of zeppelin it's we're, we're hearing the same things and it's a little bit fine the side hasn't got going that's all i think are, are we applying 2021 album formation rationale to a crazy era that none of us really understand and maybe just fucking anything went yeah maybe that is the case steve but yeah. you know we, we then go on to another one where you just think, I don't get it. Why, why is this here? Which is the lair, which for me is, 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 is the joint sort of low point of the album. Again, it's perfectly pleasant. There's nothing inherently wrong with it. It's, it's not a bad song. The vocal gets on my tits a bit, but there are much better songs on the album than this. See, that's really interesting because I find Papalardi singing on this really captivating, really kind of enchanting. I don't know. I, I feel where your, your face says it all. To me, this, this is, this is, this obvious. This is an obvious follow-on to to my friend. If you're going to have it on the album, it makes sense because I'm sure they segue into each other quite nicely. I'm picking up far more influences and cultures in this than I did in to my friend. I can. I've got a bit of Indian mysticism, which I presume is all the rage back at the end of the sixties. Everyone thought they were Ravi Shankar, didn't they? Another thing, Corky Lang's drumming in this is genius because it's really underplayed. It's it's just so restrained. It'd be easy just to get you know carried away, and he doesn't. And it's I think musically, I think there's quite a lot in this. Side one is a rock band. Yeah. Side two is something completely different. Maybe that was the point, but I just don't know it. Is it the fact that there's all three together? I think of the three of them, I prefer the Laird at the moment. Quite interesting to listen to. I like the sort of, yeah, sort of sitar-type sounds to the guitar. But it, it is weird having the three of them together at the beginning of the, this. But the one thing I would say about this this track is in here, the influences that, that Dave Manichetti picked up, because... There's, it's got that kind of manichetti, kind of very clear single notes that, that come through um, everything else that's going going on, and, and that that's kind of a trademark of Y&T stuff as well. So track 
three goes into the penultimate track on the album, which is Sitting on a Rainbow. Very important not to pronounce the G and insert it. This is a bit of a sort of good old hoedown, isn't it? And I just, but it's, it, it gets all rocked up at the end. I really like this. This is a good old fashioned rock and roll song. Yes, yeah, normal service resuming, isn't it? This is um, yeah. heavy credence, clear water revival. Isn't it? And we got double cowbell on this. So, yeah, I, I put, put down good stomper. Silver Paper got a cowbell rating, by the way, of 3.812. And uh, this is the fourth track on uh, Ultimate Cowbell, gets a cowbell rating of 3.80704. They've let the side down there, haven't they? Yeah. Who writes that shit? Richard, you'll never bore us with ultimatecowbell.com. I, I must admit, their scoring system, wow. I mean, hats off to them. They've really put that through the computer, haven't they? Pi's not got that many numbers, has it? Christ. Well, no, no, sorry. I think that this is why that we can recommend them um, as, as a source of accurate data because they work on five decimal places like us. Yeah, I was about to say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kindred yeah. spirits. Yeah, I love Sitting on a Rainbow. It's fucking brilliant without the G, obviously. It's, yeah, I was just saying it's a bit Southern, bit Southern rock. And, of course, they were from New York State, I think, when they <laughs> Not very southern at all, but it's got that feel to it. It does, but the whole album does. I, I get mm. southern rock coming through a lot of it. And we're into the final track on the album, which is Boys in the Band. The opening of this is Wine Tea Every Day of the Week. This is I Believe in You. And has the, and has the similar wonderful sign-off solo as well. This one does as well, doesn't it? I think it's a, it's a really good finish to the album. Yes, I agree. It's a nice mellow end. Bit of rock in there as well. It's a good finish. It's been a funny side too, hasn't it, as you say? A bit of a funny side too. So let's get on to um, let's get on to highs and lows. Uh, Steve, start with you. Okay, yeah. Well, my high was um, Silver Paper, like that a lot. And the low, it's I don't know how you pronounce it. I think I'll go with you for Yazga's Farm. I think uh, it's between to my friend and Yazga's Farm as as the low. I'll, I'll probably say to my friend because whilst it's a very pleasant interlude, it doesn't do anything fantastic. And never in my life is my favourite. Yeah, I'm kind of there. That I had um, Yazga's farm and the laird at the bottom I think probably on balance uh, I would if I had to choose one it would be on yes uh, Fiasca's farm uh, and my my high well my high was also never in my life so yeah I think we're pretty much in agreement on that aren't we so that's two albums down mountains still climbing March 7th 1970 Leslie West and Co seeing off the second of our three albums of the evening which just leaves one to go which is Richard's Choice, uh, released in November of that year. It is the debut album from Lucifer's Friend. Richard, take it away. Yes, so this was a bit of a find. Um, I think my finest probably since uh, I found Phantom Blue all of those episodes ago. Right, let's talk about Lucifer's Friend. They were formed in 1970 when a band called Asterix, uh, with most of the members, uh, met up with a British vocalist called John Lawton who had been across in Germany with his band Stonewall. And after they finished, uh, he decided to stay on and uh, met the, the other guys from Asterix. He quite liked the sound in terms of, sort of gothic and elements of Black Sabbath and lots of other sort of darker influences. 
and felt like doing something with them. So Lucifer's Friend then formed in Hamburg in 1970. And in the back end of 1970, then went into the studio, a couple of studios, to record their debut album. Opening album sleeve notes. It was recorded in a little studio called Ton Studio in a town called Maschen in uh, the Seyvital province. And uh, in the... Windrose Dumont Time Studio in Hamburg itself. Uh, the album was produced by a fellow by the name of Herbert Hildebrandt, as I said, recorded around November 1917, released at the end of the year on the Philips label in the uh, EU and the Billingsgate label in the US. In terms of personnel, as I said, John Lawton was on vocals, Peter Hessline on guitars, vocals and percussion, Peter Hecht on organ, piano and I think an instrument that is nearly up there with the uh, chainsaw, which is the French horn. Dieter Horns was on bass and vocals and Joachim Rietenbach were on drums and percussion. Having a clue whether it charted anywhere or how much it sold, uh, but it is still available uh, for those who are willing to share, shelve out about 53 quid or so. In terms of the track listing, uh, side one was Ride the Sky, track two, Everybody's Clown, track three, Keep Going, track four, Toxic Shadows. And on side two, Free Baby, Baby You're a Liar, in the time of Job when Mammon was a yippie. Yes, that's the title. We'll talk about it later. And the final track is the title track of the album, Lucifer's friend it's been an amazing adventure this album uh, and uh, it was a really 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 pleased i found it and and picked it my goodness these guys are different aren't they what did you think of it i, I think it's a magnificent listen it was john lawton who said they sounded he could sense the sabbath influences they hated the sabbath comparisons i love this quote from hessline he said i never liked sabbath i didn't think they had a good singer and the guitarist didn't impress me either <laughs> yeah, Tony, I am up yours. I mean, and I agree with him on the Aussie thing as well. I think that's brilliant. I think it's, I think it's a brilliant album. I, I found it of the three the most interesting. It just takes so much getting into. There's so much going on. Any album that starts with a French horn, I mean, that's just just different gear. And there's a real kind of jam session feel to it. Anyway, I love Lawton's voice. Bit of a poor man's Ian Gillum, which is a good thing. Just just a massive bag of all sorts. Just incredible fun. So much so that I actually thought about buying the album. Mark? <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. This is the best album that I have heard in probably five years. I think this is just amazing. It's an absolutely towering piece of work. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, I did spend £53 buying the vinyl version of it. I'd never heard it before uh, this week. The very first time, I just went, this is really, really special. And it's interesting, isn't it, that, that if you talk to some people, they would say that Lucifer's Friend were as instrumental in pioneering heavy metal as Black Sabbath were. And, and I think there are elements of this that are like Deep Purple meets Disraeli Gear Zero Cream meets Black Sabbath with, with Tony Iommi on guitar and it is very doomy in places but it's got that amazing vocal and it's and it's just an absolute revelation and I have really struggled to listen to anything else this week this is an absolutely magnificent record let's get into it then shall we let's have a listen 
Right, so eight tracks on the album, and track one of side one is Ride in the Sky, which just explodes, really, doesn't it? After the high, screaming, Gillen-esque notes, uh, it sounds like you're getting an elephant running your way, which, which in fact, is this severely distorted French horn. One way of describing this track is, well... Is it a rip off the of the immigrant song by Led Zeppelin, or is the immigrant song a rip off of this one? They were pretty much written and released at exactly the same time in 1970. Anyway, what a calling card! It's a brilliant riff. This absolutely charging tempo, and then John Lawton soaring vocals over the top of it. It's got a maiden type bass riff that Steve Harris would die for, and then it's enormously heavy. This makes me very emotional. That's it. That's it. That's all I've got to say. <laughs> I love this one. That French horn element just cracks me up. That is just such an unbelievable addition to the song. It's almost like Heaven and Hell era Sabbath, isn't it? It's just, it's, it's just neon nights on acid. It's just fantastic. It's just astonishing. I mean, it's a really, really surprisingly astonishing first track. They have no right to be this consummate at, at this stage. Astonishing. Brilliant. John Lawton, I mean, he went off and joined URI Heat, didn't he? And at hardest prize. He's got a voice that's absolutely made for Heat. Consummate, I think, is 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 exactly the word, Steve. This is just gorgeous. That wasn't that wasn't John Lawton's claim to fame, of course. You do know that, don't you? He starred for the Les Humphreys singers in the Eurovision Song Contest in 1976. <laughs> that was the German entry into the 1976 wow. Eurovision Contest was a band called the Les Humphreys Singers, and they sang a song called Sing Sang Song. <laughs> he said he just did it to pay the bills. Pay the bills, because this album just didn't really do anything, yeah. did it? I mean, it, yeah. it, he says that he felt that the album was just a little too far ahead of its time for German yeah. audiences. Well, I think that's, that's true, isn't it? It's wrong place, right time, who knows? But I, I kind of listen to this and I think, God, I wish I'd discovered this yeah. years ago. And yeah, hopefully if we can introduce this to a few more people. Go out and buy it, go and listen to it. We better talk a bit more about it. On to track two then, and everybody's clown. Well, oh, crumbs. Another amazing bass riff. You've got Who-type power chords, Pete Townsend-type power chords over the start of it. And then all the drums and organ accents. And then, of course, Lawton's soaring vocals again. Uh, uh, I mean, it really carries on the speed and the power of the whole album. What's amazing about this song is that, so you've got this really nice kind of groovy hook running through it. And then, as you say, Lawton's voice is fabulous. It wanders here, there and everywhere. But they bring it all back together with that brilliant backbeat to finish it off. It's very, very reminiscent of an MC5 song in as much as it's that just incessant backbeat that never falters. And it absolutely drives the song through wherever they go it comes back together very clever Lawton said that um, the three H's as he called them Hesline, Hecht and Horns they would go over it in such fine detail you know these boys were not amateurs so track three of side one is Keep Going which is a lot slower but huge huge chords is anyone else getting war picks by Black Sabbath on this. This really slow, big, powerful start with the big, big drum rolls. And then it just clicks into this amazing, amazing groove. Again, as you say, the arrangements and the musicianship on this album are fantastic. What I really love about this album is that every instrument at some point leads the song. On this, there's a point where the keyboards just take the song over. It's quite astonishing when you hear it. You know, I've listened to this, oh God, I, I don't know how many times I've listened to this album this week. I found myself up at 
20 past one in the morning listening to it. And I couldn't take it off. I know this will come as a surprise to you boys. This is getting a massive score from me, this album. <laughs> it's such it, almost a gamble. This is such a kind of trippy, hippie thing to do. They had, they had no need to do this intro. They could easily have just gone straight from that incredible organ bridge that goes into the, the bass drive, that goes into the fantastic guitar solo. They could have left all that first bit behind but they didn't it's almost like a scene set that it needed to be there it's yet another crazy trap so brilliantly thought through and that eerie cathedral organ work is you know this is what mountain we're missing something like this you know, some real energy on the on the on the ivories so track four and the final track on side one is toxic shadows and another change in style really that starts with a very heavy organ and again, the sort of same similar power chord. But then there's almost funk influences I'm getting on this one. And again, it settles into this incredible guitar-driven groove. I like the way you call it a change of style, as if, as if just what style was it anyway? <laughs> this is just everything. I mean, you've got no idea where this is going, but you know that seven minutes long, pretty unlikely that it's going to be straightforward and, and, and where you think. So, yeah, you've got the first couple of minutes, it's kind of straight ahead rock, and then you're into a crazy kind of jam, kicked off with the bass guitar and then the organ line to drive it on. And, and then there's a point in it where the monotony, and it's like good monotony that I was talking about earlier with Blood Rock, hypnotises you. And then, it, and then it goes into this real sort of kick-ass finish. When I would listen to this the first time, as it built and built and built, I thought this was my track of the album until dot 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 ride sky was good you know where it was this one where i was just on the floor how good is john norton's voice in this as well the range that he has here is is just phenomenal and yeah it's complex and it's absolutely hypnotic i remember when i first heard this song i was at a petrol station to put some fuel in the car and i sat in my car for seven minutes so i couldn't get out of the damn car just brilliant Let's flip the album over and track five in the first track on side two is called Free Baby. Well, and this starts off with an incredible sort of staccato organ and this uh, wonderful wandering bass line with Lawton and the guitar further back in the mix. I know his voice almost sounds a bit almost ethereal and sort of surrounding you, very echoey. Probably a bit more traditional, would you say? But it's got a fantastic chug again to it. A slam dunk 10 out of 10 song for me. Just absolutely brilliant. The hook line in it, one of the best track one side two songs wow. I've ever heard. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, this was, this, this was the one for me. It's just this is astonishing. As I say, like Mark said, Toxic Shadows, I thought that was something else, but the, the song structure is quite similar. It's just, again, it's that kind of hypnotic middle section and um, it's hard to describe. You, I think I'm pretty good with words, but this is just on a... Oh, it's just fantastic. There you go. <laughs> That's how good with words I am. <laughs> I could listen to this all day. Okay, well, unfortunately, let's move it on so we can finish the podcast and uh, move on to track six. This is Baby, You're a Liar. It starts off with a fantastic sort of talk-repeat conversation going on between the organ and the guitar before, once again, it just sits into this really big driving riff. I mean, it does sit as quite a nice pair with the previous song, doesn't it? I don't know whether they're related in anyone. Yeah, it, it does It does feel a bit like a companion piece to don't have, really have the words. It's more of the excellent same. I, just, I love the I love the chorus, love everything about it. Love the bass line. I just love all the bass lines anyway. I think Dieter Horns is, um, I mean, this was back in the day when you had to play that instrument, didn't you, as an instrument, and it was a standalone instrument. 
it wasn't just there, you know, tapping out at four by four. He died last year, and um, Lawton played a lovely tribute to him. He said that they played a, a festival recently, and all these younger bands, all the bass players from these younger bands, they'd all come up to Dieter Horns and say, "Oh, Dieter, can you show us how to play this, that, and the other?" He was just obviously a really sort of you know respected, revered figure in the sort of the world of, of the four string. And you've only got to hear this to to get it. It's just brilliant. And how often do we say that? Yeah, I know. Place? Yeah, exactly. Because we should say. I suppose at this point that they are still going so they've reformed with three of the original members they released a new album called Black Moon in 2019 and yeah let's hope that they're out and about and out on the road and we're certainly going to keep our eyes out I guess guys to try and go and see them if we can Mm. wild horses okay let's move on to uh, to track seven (laughs) track seven so we're going to go from babies to yippies and uh, this wonderfully titled song in the time of job when mammon was a yippie which is fairly straight ahead rock but with the maddest lyrics you've ever set eyes on in your life i had a right old giggle when i looked these up just kudos alone for getting the words chippy and yippy in the first verse of any bloody song i mean that's phenomenal you not be intrigued by this song it's just it's like it's also music it's like jesus christ superstar on acid it's just absolutely brilliant. i love it it wasn't just getting the word chippy in it was it was the irreverence of back in the day when joseph was a chippy you know, a <laughs> carpenter he's <laughs> Oh, my God. Okay, you've set the scene. I know what to expect now. Thanks very much. I am going to absolutely love this song, and I did. Oh, my dozy rosy eyes, screw me, I'm a tuba. Free as a beetle, Coogan flip for, get down on your knees and love and love the man. What? Now, I don't want to bring this down to earth, but th- th- there's a there's a very strange middle interlude in this song where the keyboard becomes seriously irritating. You've got to mention the bad with the good with this band. It's just, even for me, I just think it's a bit, just a wee bit nuts. I'm also getting a lot of Speed King, by the way, certainly in the original riff. No, I can hear that, yeah. Right, well, let's uh, bring this album to a close with the title track. And uh, yet again, one when I heard it for the first time, I just thought, what? The, I mean, it, it starts off with sound effects like sort of a haunted playground from some hammer horror film. And then what comes out of these amazing sound effects is the most incredible bass line. And then power chords again, these organ-driven power chords over the top and incredibly distorted guitar, like really distorted guitar. And then it goes super heavy. We talk about Sabbath, we talk about purple, but was this where heavy metal really started? I'm getting a lot of Ian Gillen here. What, with Lawton singing? Because I was thinking Sammy Hagar from his Montrose days. I can definitely hear that in his voice in this song. But I think basically what we're saying, if we're comparing him to the people we're comparing him to, like Dio and Hagar and um, Gillen, I think we can safely say he's a bloody good singer. Yeah, no, this is my favourite track off the album, just because it's, it's, well, not just because, I mean, it is properly bloody heavy. I mean, the finish is absolutely bonkers. It's just an absolute firestorm um, with the organ, just away with the fairies and Lawton singing. And they basically jam it out. And that's what I really, really like about the end of this album, because there's been so much kind of, I was going to say, free play. They haven't, because, they, because they're so accurate in everything they do. But I love that jamming feel as it goes out. Priceless finish. Um, it's a great song. It's a great way to end the album. It's like a very disturbed child in time by Deep Purple. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Child in time looked like a nursery. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, well, that's good. That's good. I'm glad you both enjoyed it. It was a, a fascinating discovery for me. So let's have some highs and lows from you, Steve. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, not, not no real low as such. Um, the lowest score has gone to keep going and uh, several, several high eights, but there's a nine in my heart and that's Lucifer's Friends title track. I think it's just nutty genius and, and so heavy. It's right in my ballpark. Mark? The lowest score I have given is to Everybody's Clown, which is a song I love, so that tells you something. Um, and the high, Free Baby, and nailed on Stone Cold Tim. For me, the ones that didn't score as well as the others are Baby You're a Liar and Mammon Was a Yippie. And I'm going to give the highest score to the opening track, Ride in the Sky, because for sheer impact and, oh my God, it just absolutely hit me between the eyes. So there we go. Uh, Lucifer's Friend, the third of our 1970s albums on this episode. And yeah, my goodness, I think we've had an absolute ball and uh, discovered three crackers. So what we need to do now is score each track and see how these albums do against all of the others in the Hall of Fame. So let's score them. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. So there you go. We've reviewed our three albums in this 1970 episode of uh, Enter Sadman. So let's see what the scores are. I brought uh, Blood Rock's debut album to the table first. I don't think I've ever seen quite such unity of thought between us when it comes to a single album. Mark, you gave it 7.2, exactly. Richard, you gave it 7.27, and I gave it 7.3 for a grand total of 7.27. So... I mean, my mass is shit, but that's less than 0.1, isn't it, between the three? Anyway, Mark, yeah, Mountain. Uh, yep, so uh, Mountain's Climbing. Again, we weren't a long way away from each other, were we? Um, Steve, you gave it a 7.05. Uh, Richard, you gave it a 7.17 um, to round it up. And I gave it a 7.3, near as damn it, for an average score, album score of 7.17037. Lucifer's Friend, Richard. Yeah, wow. This did rather well. So Steve gave it a 7.75. I gave it an 8.19. And Mark, you gave it a whopping 9.11. And that gives Lucifer's friend an overall total of 8.35. Well, let's see where that ends up in the Hall of Fame. Let's uh, go over there now and see how they've all fared. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. Right, so here we are once again in our hallowed Hall of Fame. 111 albums now up on its walls. And where have the three from this episode landed? Well, going up the table, Climbing by Mountain has made it in at number 78. One place ahead of Entrance by the Scorpions and just below Peace of Mind by Iron Maiden. A few places above them at 74, Blood Rock's debut album has come in ahead of, interestingly, High Time by MC5 and just below Stained Class by Judas Priest. And in terms of the third album of this evening, well, we're going to go up through the 60s, the 50s, the 40s, the 20s, the teens, and we've got our second entry in two episodes into the top 10. After Def Leppard's On Through the Night in episode 36, Lucifer's Friend has come in Believe it or not, at number six, just above Thunder and Lightning by Thin Lizzy and a whisker below 
lightning to the nations by diamond head so as mark said earlier we really have found another godfather another granddaddy of this genre we all love what do you think of that gents no i'm astonished where lucifer's friend is utterly utterly astonished they deserve to be you know at least mid-table all of them and that's what i was expecting i knew i loved lucifer's friend but i figured i, I would love it far 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 more than you two in broad terms i think we all felt the same way about that that was um i think we just thought it was a magnificent album all around really didn't we we generally spoke very highly of, of blood rock and mountain as well and you know they're camped in the in the mid-70s shows how much we really did enjoy our teutonic chums well never ceases to surprise does it this is the enter sad men podcast so there you have it. That's the end of uh, another thoroughly enjoyable show. Our Enter Sad Men 1970 special, episode 37, and uh, Lucifer's friend. I'm still, I'm still reeling. It's, it's, it's up there. It's, it's, it's on the walls. It's number six. It's in our top ten. So yeah, hope you've had as much fun listening to it as we have putting it together, and uh, we look forward to your company next time. Cheers. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.